this morning as you consider the manifold greatness of our God. The beauty of the name of Jesus, the wonderful aspect of the name of Jesus, and the powerful name of Jesus. Beloved, there was a man who was crippled. And the Bible says that Peter and John came along and by the miracle working power of God healed that man. And the religious authorities, like they always did in those days, what is these people? What are these people doing? And with whose authority have they done this? And they questioned Peter and John. And here's what they said. They said, by the power, what name did you do this? And, and, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, amen, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there, listen to this, y'all, is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved jesus is it y'all he is powerful he's wonderful he's beautiful and we're so thankful this morning for god if you've walked in these walls this morning without christ as your lord and savior i pray the holy spirit would overwhelm you not that you could not say no but that you would never want to say no to the drawing power of the Holy Spirit to be saved this morning. The name of Jesus is your only hope. And I pray this morning you would come under that powerful name. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the goodness and mercy of Christ. We believe, based upon the authority of God's word, that any person, regardless of their past, can be saved if they'll only turn from sin and trust in Christ. So I pray, Father, this morning the Holy Spirit would beckon them. I pray the Holy Spirit would draw them and they would gladly say yes. And even this morning, Father, even this morning, Father, you would save them. Show yourself to be mighty in our midst, Father. It's in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. Grab your seat right there. Grab your copy of God's word and go with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. The year was 1517. A 34-year-old friar in the order of St. Augustine of the Roman Catholic Church, he looked around and you know what he saw? He saw a great need for restoration. There was a great need of restoration because there was great brokenness. There was intense spiritual darkness because <laughs> nobody read the Bible. In fact, almost nobody had a copy of the Bible, and even if they did have a copy, the vast majority could not have read it because nearly all the copies of the Bible that were available to them were written in the dead language of Latin. And, and almost none of the common folks spoke or read Latin. And so this led to, to serious doctrinal errors. Serious doctrinal errors. I mean, like the kind of errors that would, would truly be labeled heresy. Right, a heresy is that thing 
which, which moves not just a, in a variation of Christianity, but moves outside of Christianity. I mean, that's how broken the church around him, the Christians around him were. And on top of all that doctrinal brokenness was the moral brokenness of the church. You see, if you wanted a position to lead in the church, all you had to do was come up with the, the right amount of money. I mean, it was, it was given to the highest bidder. A, a, a process or a, a, a phenomenon called simony, trying to buy a place in the church of God. The church was also abusing its people. It was spiritually abusing them, it was financially abusing them, especially through the sale of indulgences, which was a way supposedly to buy yourself or your loved ones out of purgatory. Now, purgatory is one of those false doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church that says... For those of you who die in Christ, your sins aren't completely paid for. You have to die and then go to purgatory, not hell, but purgatory where you pay for the sins that Jesus did not pay for. And eventually, you are purged of those sins so that you may enter into heaven. But the Roman Catholic Church came up with a great fundraiser. They said, if we can just get the people to pay for indulgences we'll tell them that that will get their loved one out of purgatory quicker i mean the pope had the authority to say out of purgatory and there was one guy in particular by the name of john tetzel he was the best seller of roman catholic indulgences and he used a rather powerful sell slogan he said as soon as the coin in the coffer rings the soul out of purgatory springs it even rhymed in German. If I were to do it for you in German, it even rhymed in German. And the people were being fleeced left and right. And this Augustinian friar, he became burdened. You know, restoration begins with a burden. Have you heard that anywhere lately? Restoration begins with a burden. That's what we found here in the book of Nehemiah. And this young friar got so burdened that he decided he was going to do something, especially concerning this awful selling of indulgences again as we've seen in nehemiah restoration continues with a willingness to act and so he came up with a plan again just like we saw in nehemiah restoration requires a plan and his plan was to nail to the front door of the city's catholic church there in wittenberg he was going to, to, to nail there to that door his grievances against this awful practice of, of selling indulgences now that in itself to us, I mean, if you were to come up on Sunday morning and um, I, we've got glass doors, so you can't nail anything to them anyway, right? But if you saw something taped <laughs> to the door, all of these grievances against the church or against the practice of the church, I mean, that, would, that, would, that sounds radical to us. But honestly, in those days, that really wasn't that radical. I mean, it was commonplace. The church door was kind of like the community bulletin board, okay? But this was his plan. But as we find in Nehemiah, restoration happens when you get to work. I mean, plans are ultimately no good unless we actually do what we said we would do. And so this friar put his plan into practice. He wrote out his grievances against the Roman Catholic practice of indulgences. And when he was done writing, turned out he didn't have just a few. <laughs> he had 95 in, uh, uh, grievances against indulgences. And he took these 95 grievances, or maybe you know them as theses, and nailed them to the Wittenberg church door on a prominent, uh, prominent Roman Catholic holiday called All's, All Hallows' Eve. 
All Hallows Eve, which is the night before All Saints Day on the Roman Catholic calendar. Today, we know All Hallows Eve as just one word, Halloween. And in that moment, that 34-year-old Augustinian friar, he sparked off one of the greatest restoration movements in the history of the world. Now, they didn't call it the Restoration. They called it the Reformation. And this 34-year-old Augustinian friar's name was Martin Luther. And Luther, throughout the Reformation, he faced great opposition. I mean, it's a great story. But, you know, Restoration demands that you stand against opposition we've seen that in nehemiah and stand he did in fact at one point he was arrested brought before a roman tribunal and was told luther you can either recant everything you've said and taught burn your books burn your writings or be excommunicated and behind that threat also was or die now excommunication in those days i mean that was a serious deal right i mean your, your opportunity for grace, they believed, was tied to the Roman Catholic Church. And if you couldn't get the grace that the church handed out week after week, then you would be in trouble. And so excommunication was a big, big deal. But Luther, after a night of prayer, he famously repri- uh, replied. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound here i stand i can do no other god help me and the reformation continued on and there wasn't just reformation of of christianity there no no it was it was also reformation of the christians themselves i mean luther's life was radically transformed and so were many others again we find in nehemiah that restoration coincides with the restoration of man and last week we saw that restoration culminates with celebration and undoubtedly Luther celebrated and he probably often celebrated as you might expect a German ex-Roman Catholic to celebrate all right restoration or or or, or the reformation it, it seemed complete but you know in the wake of the Protestant Reformation there arose a saying an important realization captured in this one simple latin phrase semper reformanda semper reformanda it was coined in 1674 nearly what i mean like 160 years after luther nailed his 95 theses to the wittenberg church door the phrase it's it's credited to jodicus van lotenstein who was a reformer in what we now call the netherlands But the second and third generations, they come to understand, right, what Semper Reformanda basically means. Always reforming. They began to understand that after you reach restoration, there's always a tendency to slide backwards. There's always a tendency to regress and they learned that they had to guard against there. Therefore, they said, we must always work to be reforming. Semper reformanda. And Nehemiah, as you look here in the book of Nehemiah, he found, out, he found that out to be true long before Luther found that out and the other reformers, right? He found that out in the 5th century B.C., which leads us to this morning's final step 
in the biblical process of restoration that we've seen here in the book of Nehemiah. And here it is. It's today's truth. Restoration guards against regression. Restoration guards against regression. Now, first, we're going to look at instances of, of regression after the city of Jerusalem was restored here in the book of Nehemiah. And then we're going to turn our attention to what we find in Nehemiah for how to guard against regression. All right, so first, instances of regression after the city was restored. Now, if you'll remember with me, Nehemiah is there in Jerusalem doing what he was doing by the behest of the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. He was there because the king said he could be there, right? Nehemiah remember was Artaxerxes cupbearer and Nehemiah had asked him can I go to Jerusalem to help my people and my city out to help restore it and and he wasn't just released completely by the king as part of the decision to let him go the king asked him in Nehemiah 2 6 Nehemiah 2 6 and the king said to me the queen sat beside him how long will you be gone and when will you return so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So there was an expectation. Nehemiah is going to go do his thing, and eventually he's going to return back to King Artaxerxes. And that's what he did at some point. We're not told exactly when, but at some point after the restoration was complete, we read it in Nehemiah 13 in the chapter we're focusing on today. Verse 6 and 7 says, While this was taking place, and we're going to get to the this in a moment, these are instances of regression. I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked, leave the king and came to Jerusalem. And the idea is came to Jerusalem again. He, he'd been gone for several months. And what did Nehemiah find upon returning to Jerusalem? <laughs> well, he found out that when the cat's away, the mice will play. There was regression all throughout the city. Now, we see four ways that the people regressed while Nehemiah was away. Check these out with me. First, they regressed by allowing foreigners to live in the temple complex. They allowed foreigners to live in the temple complex. Look at verse 4 and 5 here in Nehemiah 13. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Now, Tobiah was a foreigner. He was an Ammonite, right? They were not allowed as a foreigner to be in the temple at all. And here's Tobiah being given an apartment in the temple complex. Eliashib, the priest, was allowing a foreigner not just to visit the temple, which was against the, 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 the old covenant law, but to take up residence. And even worse, this was not just some regular foreigner. I mean, you, you should probably recognize the name if you've been tracking along with us here in the book of Nehemiah, the name Tobiah. Tobiah, again, was the Ammonite, the servant of Sanballat, the Horonite. And together, those two guys, they had caused Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem so much grief as they tried to restore the city of Jerusalem. 
But when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, here is the sworn enemy of the people of God living in the Jewish temple. Second, they regressed by ignoring providing for the temple staff. Ignoring providing for the temple staff. Now, Nehemiah had worked hard to set aside the Levitical priests and the singers and the gatekeepers for dedicated city and dedicated temple work. He wanted to make sure that they had everything that they needed. And so the Jewish people as a whole said, we will provide them what they need for a living if they will just focus on the city and the temple. But we read in Nehemiah 13.10. And I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. So the, the Jewish people weren't providing for them. In fact, the place where they were supposed to be, pro, where their provision was supposed to be stored, we just read, had been given to Tobiah. <laughs> Tobiah, you just take the place where we would store the wine and the grain and the, 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 uh, the frankincense and all the things that we would provide here for the temple worship and for the temple workers. Tobiah, you just take all of that place so the jewish people weren't providing for them and so these people they did what they had to do they set their temple work aside they set their gatekeeping aside their singing aside and they went to work in their own fields they had they had to survive they had to provide for their family third they regressed by profaning the sabbath by profaning the Sabbath. Look at Nehemiah 13, verse 15 and 16. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in the heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. You see, beloved, you have to understand that the Sabbath was a key part of the Old Covenant. And God had clearly told them, clearly told them in the Ten Commandments, which, which sums up the moral law of the Old Covenant, Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day, the Lord said. Keep it holy. Six days you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy so from sundown on friday to sundown on saturday they were supposed to do zero work right that was the sabbath they they didn't we kind of count from sun up to sun up right that's kind of how we count our days they counted them from sundown to sundown and so from sundown on friday to sundown on saturday it was truly to be a day of rest so that the people could could rejuvenate right by by resting and and focusing on the lord but they were treating the Sabbath just like any other day. They weren't treating it holy. In fact, they were profaning it. And fourth and finally, we see that they regressed by marrying pagans. They were marrying pagans. Look at verse 23 and 24. 
Nehemiah 13, 23 and 24. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Again, I mean, this is a serious breach of the Old Covenant. I mean, many of the best of Israel throughout the history, even King Solomon himself, were pulled away from the Lord to pagan gods by their foreign wives. And it wasn't just common folk that were doing this. It was the religious leaders as well. Look, look at verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. I mean, here's Eliashib's grandson. Eliashib's the high priest. He's the, he's the leader of Israel in that regard, the spiritual leader of Israel. And his grandson, has taken on and his, as his wife the daughter of Israel's archenemy, Sanballat the Horonite. So there was regression all around there in Jerusalem. And, and, and restoration, y'all, must guard against regression. All right, so now let's, let's, let's turn our attention to what we find in Nehemiah for how to do that. How do we guard against regression? I, I want to give you six ways this morning. And the first one is this, simply recognize the gravity of our depravity. Recognize the gravity of our depravity, all right? The, 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 the spiritual fact is that, the, that life is this, in this world is broken. And the fact that our, 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 our gravity has a, our, our depravity has a gravity to it, right? That, that's just a spiritual fact. Like gravity, everything falls down. Spiritually, people naturally, morally fail. Systems naturally degrade. <laughs> Stuff that functions always tends toward dysfunction. And in physics, uh, this is best captured in the second law of thermodynamics, which is the law of entropy. Entropy is this. It's the process of degradation, of running down or a trend to disorder. That which is orderly tends to chaos. That which is organized tends to disorganization. That which is systematic tends to randomness. And, and that's what it's like to live in a fallen world. And, and where we work to restore, listen, regression is a natural fact of life. It comes right in behind us. Whatever we restore, here comes regression right in behind us. That's what we saw here in Nehemiah. He fixed Jerusalem, got rid of the brokenness and with a few months just a few months here comes the brokenness trying to creep back in beloved that's what it's like to live in a fallen world and we got to recognize this reality we got to recognize this if we're going to maintain what we've restored second this morning you and i have to come to grips with restoration never <laughs> ending it's never ending some of you who own your home, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> Restoration is never-ending. We simply have to embrace this, this mentality of, of semper reformanda. Or maybe we should call it semper restoranda, right? I mean, that's probably bad Latin, <laughs> but you get the point. We have to realize, y'all, restoration is never actually over because brokenness is always going to try to creep back in. 
We see that in our nation, don't we? We see that in our nation, even as our Constitution was drafted and it was ratified back in 1787. Upon exiting the Constitutional Convention, Benjamin Franklin was approached by a large group of citizens asking, what, what, what sort of government did, 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 did we create? And his answer perfectly captures the idea that everything trends toward brokenness and that restoration is never-ending. Here's what he said. He prophetically answered, a republic, if you can keep it. We were created as a republic, as a democratic republic, if we can keep it. So Franklin, he realized that the nation that had just been birthed as a constitutional republic would only remain that way if the people worked to keep it. And we see that playing out in the politics every day. One group is trying to tear it down, and the other group is trying to build it up. One group is trying to destroy it, the other group is trying to preserve it. We see that played out every day. But this is just what happens in every restoration process. Y'all, we just simply have to come to grips with the reality that restoration is never ending. And, and, and honestly, I think Nehemiah learned this the hard way. I, I gotta believe he was surprised. When he came back into town and he saw that, he was like, what? He didn't expect that, but he probably should have. He learned that the hard way. Don't you learn it the hard way. You need to, you need to expect this, recognize and just come to grips with the fact that restoration is never ending. Third, if we're going to guard against regression, you have to never forget what got you into the brokenness. Never forget what got you into brokenness. He reminds us here in this text, reminds them of how the brokenness that they were allowing back in it's just like the brokenness that had led them to the mess they had just gotten out of. Look at verse 17 and 18. This is in light of the people profaning the Sabbath. It says, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And indeed, that's true, right? It, it was the moral slide of the nation of Judah that ended up turning them all to idolatry. And what led God to, to eventually bring discipline upon the people of Judah by bringing Babylon to destroy the nation and the city and the temple and to carry away the Jewish people into exile. I mean, the people within the last century, they had just gotten back home here in Nehemiah. They had finally rebuilt the temple and restored the worship there. They had finally rebuilt the city and its walls and its gates. And here the people were regressing, doing the same thing again that had brought the heavy hand of God down on them before. And Nehemiah, he refused to let them forget what had gotten them into that brokenness. And I say to you this morning, church, Look, you've got to do the same thing. You have to keep in mind the things that brought about the broken situation around you that, that you don't want to repeat it again. I, I've, got, I've been there. I've done that. I've got the T-shirt. I've got the scars. It hurt. And I never want to go back again. We, we know well the wise saying that says this. Those who forget the past are doomed to what? 
Repeat it. So, beloved, we got to know our past. We must remain vigilant against what brought our brokenness so that we never repeat it again. Fourth this morning, how do we guard against regression? Care enough to never give up. Care enough to never give up. I have to believe that when Nehemiah came into that town and he saw what he saw, I have to believe that part of his flesh wanted to just get back on his camel and go back to Susa, to the court of the Persian king. He's like, forget it, y'all. I'm done. I'm reminded of Moses. Y'all remember Moses when he led the people out of Egypt? And he had led them to worship God and to, to establish worship with God. And he had them all set up there. And, and, and God had taken them down by Mount Sinai and set them up there in a camp. And God said, all right, Moses, leave them for a little while and come up on top of this mountain. I want to I spend some time with you, delivering to you what I have for the people. And Moses was gone for several weeks. And eventually the people said, we think he's dead. He's never coming back. They said to Aaron... The priest, uh, Moses' brother, can't you just make for us an idol since this Moses is dead? And Aaron said, all right, give me your gold. And he fashioned a calf. Well, here comes Moses down from Mount Sinai. You remember this? And he hears him partying and having a great time. And as he gets closer, he's carrying with him the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And when he sees what they're doing, when he sees the regression that they are having there, they're worshiping a golden calf. They're worshiping an idol. He takes those tablets and he smashes them against the ground. I have to believe that when Nehemiah walked in to Jerusalem or rode into Jerusalem, he probably felt like just, where's a bulldozer, man? I'm going to knock this whole thing down. He had to be so frustrated in his flesh, so mad. But here's the deal, y'all. He didn't give up. He didn't give up on the people of God. Moses didn't give up, and neither did Nehemiah. And I say to you this morning, neither should you. You have to care enough to never give up. Y'all, that burden that God originally gave you was there for a reason. Don't abandon that care. Care about what you have been sent by God to do. And so Nehemiah, he, he, he didn't give up. He jumped right back into restoration. Look, he, he, he restores the regression. He found Tobiah shacked up in the temple, and what did he do? Well, look at verse 8 and 9. <laughs> he had to rearrange some furniture. I was very angry, righteous anger, not unrighteous anger, righteous anger here. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. <laughs> then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back their vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense I mean can't you just see Nehemiah taking the couch of Tobiah and tossing it out the door this doesn't belong here this is the store house of God he didn't give up he jumped right back in and, and, and when he found the Levites and the singers provisions ignored what did he do? We'll look at verse 11, 12, and 13. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil 
into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. He saw the mess and how they had veered to the left, and he said, no, 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 beloved, come back. And he took them by the hand and led them back. He said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do it the right way. We're not going to go over there again. We're going to do it the right way. When he saw the people profaning the Sabbath, what did he do? Well, look at verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not our fathers act in this way, and did our God not bring all this disaster on us and, and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Look at verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem, before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wars lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But look what he did. I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Right in the name of Jesus, right? <laughs> lay hands on in the name of Jesus. Sometimes you might have to lay hands. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Y'all look, hey, listen to me for a second. One of the problems we have in our day is that we think the first commandment is be nice. Right? One of the reasons that the people of God are weak is because we just, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, right? We are weak. Our backbones are weak. Nehemiah wasn't weak, y'all. He wasn't weak. And when the enemy or those who wanted to, to push the agenda of the enemy, when they tried to push, Nehemiah pushed back. And he said, you're not going to do it in my city. You're not going to do it in God's city. And when he discovered the people had married foreign women, well, what did he do? Well, look at verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Can't you just picture Nehemiah grabbing one of those dudes by their beards and just shaking them a little bit? Like, what's wrong with you, man? What were you thinking? And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the nations, there, were, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. All of it. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign Women, Look at verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. And then we read this summary. Nehemiah 13, verse 30 and 31. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. 
I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And the question is, why did Nehemiah do all of this? And the answer is, because he really cared about his God and about his people. He really cared. He cared enough to never give up. He cared enough to take the step to stand up. And beloved, we should do the same thing. Aren't your children worth it? Isn't your community worth it? Isn't the brokenness that you've worked to restore, isn't it worth it to maintain that? So I just say to you, don't lose heart in maintaining the restoration that God has given you. Fifth, you got to hold the standard as the leader. Whatever your situation of restoration you're working, there's a leader in that. And, and most likely, you're the leader of it. John Maxwell, he, he said it best when he said, everything rises and falls on leadership. With good leadership, it rises. With bad leadership, it falls. And so, beloved, if God has given you a burden for restoration, then, then you've got to lead in that restoration. And if God grants you success, you must lead to maintain it. If you're the leader, that's your job. Yeah, it's hard. Yes, it makes you the bad guy sometimes. Nobody likes being the bad guy. No one likes being the, the heavy, the, the, the standard bearer. But that's the burden of leadership. And we have to stand up and say, no, this is the standard, and I will not cross this line. That's the burden of leadership. And Nehemiah, he held that standard well. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't fooling around. Some of us need a little more Nehemiah in us. That's the only way to guard against regression, y'all. And sixth and finally, here's the last one I'd point you to is to put into place committed people as overseers. Put into place committed people as overseers. Now, Nehemiah thought he had done that, right? He didn't just leave Jerusalem and not tell anybody and not make any provisions for his departure and for the leadership while he was gone. No, no, he set up Eliashib. Eliashib was the high priest and, and, and perhaps Eliashib had worked really hard doing the restoration project and perhaps it looked like he had proven himself perhaps it looked like he was committed but he wasn't come on Tobiah come on in nah y'all don't have to worry about bringing that stuff for the Levites nah don't worry about that you want to work on the Sabbath go for it you want to marry a foreign woman <laughs> That's great. Hey, grandson, come here. Have you saw that pretty Ammonite girl? You ought to check her out. I mean, this was the type of leadership that Eliashib was providing in Nehemiah's absence. And what happened? Well, regression ensued. But notice that he says here that he took, look at verse 13. Verse 13, he said, I appointed as treasures over the, over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the, uh, of, the Levi, of, of the Levites, and as their assistants, Hanan, son of Sacher, son of Mataniah. Look, listen, listen. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So, beloved, look, you've got to find somebody to come alongside you in this restoration process who is trustworthy, 
people who are committed, people who have the vision and mission and they grasp it. And if we don't put people into place as overseers who are committed, then regression will ensue because when the cat's away, the mice was, I said earlier, will will play. You need a team around you to maintain whatever restoration God has brought about in your life. Beloved, that's the book of Nehemiah. And it has for you and me the process or a process of restoration. We've seen all eight steps in that process. And I pray that you have been equipped now. And who knows what we'll do with this? Who knows what the Lord will do with this? But you have been equipped to address the brokenness around you. And I promise you this, if you will get a burden and be willing and make a plan and go to work and stand against the opposition, you'll see God begin to do some things that you never thought possible. And yeah, once God gives you that gr- the grace to, to have that restoration and you celebrate, yes, there's going to be the temptation of regression by the power of God may you stand against it you know as I was thinking about the people in Nehemiah's day there I, I wondered about people in our church I wonder are there some people here today who have regressed you once were following Jesus really closely but now you have regressed you once were on fire for the Lord but now you are cold This is what oftentimes we call backslidden. You're not as close as you once were to the Lord. I I just wonder this morning, would would the Lord convict you of that and draw you to Himself closer again? Would you repent of that regression and trust afresh and and dedicate afresh your life to following God closely? Or again, as I said earlier, maybe you've come in this morning and you've never turned from sin and trusted in Christ. You've never been restored to God. Today is the day of restoration for everyone who will turn from sin and trust in Christ. And again, maybe it's just your restoration process that you're working in your life around you. Here's my final prayer. May God grant you restoration and may you work to keep it going forward. Let's pray together.